This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Chris Stroop. Chris is a historian and a provost postdoctoral scholar in the humanities and social sciences at the University of South Florida, as well as the co-editor of the upcoming anthology, By the Rivers of Babylon. We discuss his experience with K-12 Christian education, how he wrestled with faith in college, his reporting on the conservative crackdown of students and faculty on Christian college campuses, as well as his recent adoption of the No Religious Affiliation, or None moniker. It's a great conversation. Now, if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review the show on iTunes, and please tell people about the show as well. The term exvangelical keeps popping up in conversation. Nicole Nordeman mentioned it in a recent NPR interview, and another recent BuzzFeed article references that as well. The more people know about the show, the broader and more inclusive this, this discussion can become. Also, if you've been enjoying the show, please consider supporting it through Patreon. Patreon is a service that allows you to support the creators you love directly through monthly donations. Our Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. Please consider making even a $1 per month donation. That would help immensely and ensure that I can continue to bring you stories just like Dr. Stroop's and others. All right, let's get into it. Welcome, Chris. Uh, hi, thanks, Blake. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you you talking on a Sunday afternoon. Um so let's uh, let's start talking a little bit about where you're from and what your what your childhood was like. Um, sure, I uh, grew up mostly in a north suburb of Indianapolis. I was born up in northern Indiana, kind of close to Fort Wayne, but in a small town where a lot of people also did farming as well as some kind of job in the town. But only lived there until I was about five years old. And uh, then when we moved down to Fishers, um, I went to public school for kindergarten, but uh, from then, first grade on, uh, I was in Christian school, except for half of sixth grade, which is when we moved from Indianapolis to Colorado Springs, and then we moved back to Indianapolis uh, for high school. Oh, okay. Um, so during that time you went, to, you went to Christian school, was it affiliated with a, um, was it affiliated with a denomination, or was it um, like non-denominational what, what was that environment like? Non-denominational, evangelical, Protestant. I think you, you know the sort of animal that I'm talking about. Uh, it's, I believe it's probably the largest Christian school in Indianapolis. And, well, I'm using the term Christian school in the sense that it is used by schools that define themselves as Christian schools. So I'm excluding Catholic schools and Jesuit schools from, from that sort of thing, you know. Because the ones that call themselves Christian schools, by and large, started being founded in the 1960s and 70s. In the 70s, I mean, they really sort of started to blossom. They were initially devoted to, um, well, in large part, to opposing the civil rights movement. But pretty soon, as the 70s came along, they became devoted to opposing abortion, primarily. And um, I'm pretty sure the one I went to is the largest one in Indianapolis. It does have a lot of good opportunities for the students who, who go there in, in some respects relative to uh, certain public schools in the area. It has programs in the arts and that sort of thing, although I always struggled with uh, the censorship in, say, the dramas that we did in high school, but I loved being in the plays. Um, though they would have to edit out 
curse words and references. So we, I mean, you know what evangelicals do, so you can't have, you can't show generally drinking or sexual innuendo or all that stuff has to, has to go for the most <laughs> <Yeah>. part. <laughs> and things that are deeply entwined yeah. into things like Shakespeare and <laughs> yeah. real life. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so yeah. The school uh, is K through 12, and it advertises that it gets uh, higher SAT scores and that sort of thing than the surrounding public schools. But it's very, uh, it, it's 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 very strict in terms of indoctrinating you into inerrancy, the so-called biblical worldview, and all that sort of stuff. And so, as part of that, um, I know we're being a bit oblique about specifics in regards to the school. Um, did it have more of a, a Calvinist bent in regards to its teachings or was it more Arminian in respects to, to, um, to its teachings? You know, there certainly were representatives of, uh, both. So there were, uh, people there from the Wesleyan tradition, um, from the Methodist tradition, but definitely a lot of Baptists. And uh, one person that I went to school with once described it as Baptist light. And I think that that did kind of, uh, that's a pretty apt description. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Calvinism is not necessarily pushed on you. It's, it, it, it does sort of represent what I like to call the quasi-ecumenism of biblical literalism. You know, the whole, like, well, we don't have to get too hung up on the really obscure aspects of doctrine as long as we all vote for Republicans and try to <laughs> stop abortion and gay marriage. Um, so, nevertheless, I mean, there, there were some aspects of the schooling that had a very strong Calvinist flavor to them. And I, I think you listened to the Judges episode where mm-hmm. I was a guest of Sunday School Dropouts, which is a podcast hosted by my friends, um, Lauren O'Neill and Nico Bakulich, and Lauren is the co-editor for that anthology of personal essays of, uh, by people who have left conservative Christianity that we're working on. And that anthology also includes ex-Mormons, ex-Catholics, uh, um, not just ex-evangelicals. Um, so, yeah, in that episode, I talked about a certain uh, teacher there, the sophomore Bible teacher. Now, sophomore year of high school was Old Testament. And um, he described himself as a five-point Calvinist, and um, he was very specific about a number of things, and, and, and very Calvinist. And actually, I liked him a lot, because he would admit that he was sort of an old, old softy in many ways. Like he, had a, he had a tender heart, and you could see that. Um, I, would like to, I would enjoy talking to him after class about various issues, theological and social, and he would issue me hall passes when I was late to the next class, and the reason he would put in for me being late would be things like solving the world's problems. I mean, <laughs> he, was, he was a likable, crusty old guy in many ways. I didn't necessarily like that he would barge into the room just when class was about to start and yell, you're all going to hell, which he did. But we sort of <laughs> thought it was, on a regular basis, we sort of thought it was a joke. Um, but there I talked about how when he got asked about the age of accountability and he, did he think that the Bible provides for something like an age of accountability, he had to say that no, he didn't think so. And so to him, that meant that probably like babies who would die before accepting Christ as their savior or even aborted fetuses all go to hell. And that is a horrifying, horrifying view. But he started to cry as he said it. And so that just shows you that many people who are steeped in... Um, 
so so steeped in Calvinist ideology or the biblical worldview that you know they they have to follow it out to these horrifying conclusions actually live with a lot of contradictions mm-hmm. and he was i think a good man and is if he's still alive i don't know if he is yeah yeah that the the ellen that tulip the limited atonement that that can lead to a lot of uh crisis of conscience i'm sure <laughs> Well, there was a time in high school when I, you know, was reading through the entire Bible for the first time for myself and having a lot of difficulties with that, which did lead to um, one particular episode of spiritual abuse that was it's important for me, and maybe I should talk about it. But so I was reading Romans there for a while and just could not read it in a non-Calvinist way, but I was also horrified by Calvinism. And then, you know, I, there was one Presbyterian friend that I had in this school that I would talk to about my issues with hell as eternal conscious torment and that sort of thing. And he was just all blase, like, you know, hell exists for the glory of God. And I was like, really? Um, what's, what is glorious about torturing people forever? That's psychopathic. You know, I mean, I didn't use that word at the time, but I was already horrified by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that episode of spiritual abuse, and this involved a pastor who was also a Bible teacher at the school for a while. And he was also a pastor of a church that we went to for a while in uh, Carmel, Indiana. And, um, you know, I went to talk to him about the struggles I was having with biblical literalism and inerrancy. And he gave, gave me an apologetics book. And I don't remember which one it was. To tell you the truth, it was neither Josh McDowell nor Lee Struble. It was just some glib apologetics book that I didn't find particularly convincing. And so I came back and said that he really hadn't settled my doubts. And he uh, then basically told me that if I couldn't, if I wasn't able to read the Bible and the Holy Spirit and accept inerrancy, um, then I must be harboring sin in my life. And, you know, I must be allowing demons to influence me. Hmm. Oh, man. That's. And how old were you at the time? I mean, because a lot of uh, I've, I've heard from other people, too, in regards to this, that Oh, what like an older person telling a very young and impressionable impressionable person, um, you know, a secret sin maybe maybe influencing you because you can't pray in the spirit or because you can't interpret the Bible like they did. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely! You look up to these people as authority figures, and trying to figure out what God's will was for me was something that gave me extreme anxiety from an early age, to tell you the truth. So I'm already dealing with a lot of anxiety, and then you get told this. Yeah, it's, um, it's disturbing. I was 16 or 17 in that particular case, but uh, when I was much younger, there already had been nights when I would lie awake uh, crying and praying the sinner's prayer over and over because I wasn't sure if I was really saved. And that's without being raised with explicit Calvinism, although... In our earliest years, we did go to a Baptist church. Then we went to a Wesleyan church for a while. So again, there's that just, you know, to the adults, I think, in many of these communities, doctrine, doctrine, let's all vote for Republicans and hate abortion. But, um, you know, maybe there should sort of be a contradiction there, right? But um, nevertheless, like, it's, you know, take the Bible literally. Some things are obscure, but definitely there's nothing obscure about, say, same-sex marriage or homosexuality or abortion. That stuff's all 100% clear. But predestination or free will, that might be obscure, and we can agree to disagree on that, uh, which I think is totally backwards set of priorities. Well, not that I really think theological splitting hairs has much value either, honestly, anymore to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
in the more just abstract metaphysical sense of it. But yeah, then we went to um, an independent Christian church that, you know, comes out of that Disciples of Christ tradition, uh, but was pretty conservative. And my dad was the music pastor there. So um, he had, first of all, when I was, when I was a small child, he was um, band director, a high school marching band director in northern Indiana. Then he was just kind of a freelance uh, musician and sound engineer for a while. He wrote jingles. He did arrangements. He still does a lot of that studio work, and he has a home studio. And he's he got a master's degree in uh, electronic music when that was a very new thing from Ball State University in the 1970s. And he's kept up oh, with wow. all technology. He's over 60 years old. He's better at technology than me, actually, by far. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad's pretty cool. Um, but he was the uh, music pastor. And um, then we got a chance to, he got, he got this phone call and, um, from, from a pastor at a church plant in Colorado Springs. And it was basically, I mean, it was a church that was meeting at a high school in Colorado Springs, uh, but it was based on the mega church model, particularly the Willow Creek model. You know, so you use a lot of stuff from a lot of the Creek's materials, a lot of their dramas and, and that sort of thing. Have, do you have personal experience with, you know, that kind of non-denominational, let's make church sort of a rock show, we'll make it relevant to people by keeping all the same terrible theology, but we'll call the bulletin a program, and we'll call the sermon a message, and, you know, seeker sensitivity, that sort of thing? Um, I do have some, uh, some, so the church that I, I, I grew up um, in, also in small town, Indiana, um, and I grew up in Crawfordsville, uh, and we went to a Methodist church there. And then once we we moved to the suburbs of Chicago, uh, when mm-hmm. I was in high school, and we went to a another United Methodist church there. But it was kind of a booming church. Uh, it still wasn't like the um, the largest. Like there were a couple of other mega churches around. Um, they they did you know they did have and they did have like a a big um worship band and you know the big puffy mics cordless mics and um and all that sort of thing mm. but uh not not like crazy light shows or anything like that um there were i did attend a couple um there was another one that i think i i, I don't know it's definitely not affiliated with uh willow creek it was a calvary church mm. um and i think that's its own like church network um so I attended that once or twice with some friends. And then, uh, after college, I lived in Nashville for a while and I went to a couple of services down there. That was actually a period when I wasn't really going to church very often. Um, but I don't have all that much. Uh, I, I was always kind of allergic to that sort of service. Um, personally, uh, I grew up with like, uh, not, not as high church as like Episcopal, uh, as an Episcopal service, but the Methodist church I grew up with did have a degree of call and response moments with the children in the middle where the children would then leave for a little while afterwards, that sort of thing for like oh, yeah, children's church. Um, so that was kind of my background. And then, um, like I, I went to Christian college in Indiana and there was more of like the more raucous chapel services required chapel service three times a week. And that was more than enough for me. And I usually <laughs> skipped it. So, <laughs> um, you really good for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, my I, school had chapel as well, and it could be a little bit more, uh, like that too. But I, I've seen typical United Methodist services because my, uh, maternal grandparents 
went to a United Methodist church with um, the children's part and, and all of that. Yeah. And I, and I, I had an appreciation for that even early on. Um, I, because I was just, you know, I was, an I don't, I don't know how to say this without it sounding pretentious. I like, I don't know. I was like attuned to that or whatever, you know? Um, so I, I liked church. I liked spiritual questions and things like that at the time. I was that sort of introverted sort of kid. Uh, so I, I enjoyed yeah. that. Um, but in regards to like the mega church sort of stuff, like I'm in the Chicago area now, I'm not too yeah. far from Willow Creek. Mm-hmm. But I just have a negative interest in it. <laughs> like, not even zero, like negative interest in it. <laughs> <laughs> so. No, I think that the biggest problem that I have with it... Now, let me say that I do have appreciation for liturgy. I think it's beautiful. I have some uh, Catholic masses in my iTunes, like from the 16th century. Uh, I have some Orthodox Christian music in my iTunes. Um, so I, I have an appreciation for that and also for the whole... Um, order of it, the participation, the emphasis on the table. And I attended Episcopal services for a while, not like every week, but um, when I was in grad school at Stanford for some time, I was still kind of trying to figure out uh, my identity. And at a certain point, I just, I really had to face that I cannot possibly identify as evangelical anymore. And I started going to a very nice Episcopal church there for a while St. Bede's, which um, I have nothing bad to say about it. Um, it just, though, didn't feel like the, the most natural thing for me, really, to be going to church at all, even though I appreciate the liturgical service. Uh, so after I took my job after grad school um, in Moscow, where I lived for three years, from 2012 to 2015, um, I pretty much stopped going to church altogether, and I'm now willing to publicly identify as a nun, uh, not an atheist, though, but as religiously unaffiliated, though on paper I'm probably still a member of the Episcopal Church because I did get confirmed mm. in February of 2000. What year was that? 2012. Uh, oddly enough, during the service, my car was broken into and my backpack was stolen. Oh, no. <laughs> but I was <laughs> by the bishop, and uh, it was kind of cool. And um, so I haven't been kicked out, but I don't go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of got sidetracked there, didn't I? Oh, uh, so we were talking about liturgy and uh, the mega church thing, and mm-hmm. um, I think that the mega church thing may have certain potentialities and may speak to certain kinds of people, and I can see why. Uh, my dad found it to be um, kind of exciting from the perspective of his uh, creativity and the, the creative things that he wanted to do, mm-hmm. uh, at least initially. But I guess my biggest problem with it is that its edginess is a phony edginess, you know, and that it really is just a repackaging and a rebranding of very inhumane theology. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it may speak to and this is I, I don't know a millennial perspective which side note that i've never really gone into i hate the term millennial but i guess we're stuck with it um <laughs> but um well, i'm 30 but i my life experience has in some ways been more like that of a millennial than a, 
uh, Gen Xer, and I'm right on the cusp. Some people are even calling it a micro generation. You know, people born like 1978 to 1982. So yeah. for what's worth, <laughs> yeah, I'm 33. You're uh, cut out. What did you say? You're 31. Six. Oh, 36. Yeah. So so yeah, I'm somewhere near that too. But um, but anyways, I I think that perhaps like that whole sort of format of church may appeal to boomers or those shortly born born shortly after. Um, I don't know whether it was just a rejection of uh, traditional music because of the because of the advent of rock and roll or whatever else. Um, but <laughs> but I do think that uh, and with you know the the rise of grunge and everything else, would, there's probably a definitely an aspect of um, aspect of doubting the authenticity of things too for people our age and old and younger. Um, but yeah. The, <laughs> but uh, that, that sort of aspect of, of 90s music, which um, very much appeals to me, and I listen to a lot of 90s alternative, is kind of an answer to the utopianism of certain 60s rock and pop music, you know? Yeah. That in the 60s, they believed in things, and we have a hard time believing in things. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just this, the 70s and 80s were disillusioned, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's, a, I'm sure we could walk through the decades there, um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the the uh, I I I think that that criticism of uh, rock and worship services or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> contemporary music can definitely be is is valid because uh, because of the whole um, cloistered aspect of CCM of contemporary Christian music. I mean, it's set apart, but not in a good way. It's not set apart because of <laughs> because of its wholesome theology. It's set apart because there's, um, you know, always a key change after, because there's always a key change after the bridge, and then everything resolves happily. <laughs> That's right. My <laughs> uh, yeah, my my grandfather would call them Seven Eleven songs. You say seven words eleven times. <laughs> <laughs> in fairness, I mean that's not entirely true, and I mean I I think that that's somewhat true of the worship choruses. And I was but I was speaking more, I guess, of the broader, like, sort of Christian rock thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there there was some good stuff to come out of that, but also a lot of just, in my view, really cheap stuff. Um, but it's, it's, it's all an, a part of how the evangelical subculture has isolated itself, built its own parallel institutions to the rest of American society. So in that sense, it's of a piece with Christian schools, like the ones that I attended um, from first grade on, with the exception of half of sixth grade, uh, with evangelical colleges and universities, uh, which I've actually written an article, a piece of investigative journalism about how right now they are experiencing a serious conservative crackdown. It's been going on for several years. It's still going on. You're probably aware of this major changes at Cedarville, Asbury, Gordon is a major case, but a lot of others too. Many of these colleges now are actually using potential new faculties and staff probably also definitely faculty. I'm aware of that through my sources, uh, their positions on same sex marriage is a litmus test for whether they get hired. Yeah, that's, that's pretty, uh, appalling. Um, I, I did read your article. It was very interesting. Um, I, I did go to a Christian college. I went to public uh, school K through 12. Um, but I went to an evangelical, um, college, with the intent of eventually becoming a pastor. My, my path didn't um, go that way, uh, largely because of a lot of the crises of faith that I experienced at that Christian college. Um, but that's, 
Um, that does certainly ring true uh, of my own experience. I was at um, my first full week of college. Uh, the first full week, uh, our our school would always start after Labor Day. Um, so the first full week um, is when nine eleven happened, and then after that, the sort of con- this sort of conflation of um, religious conservatism and political conservatism mm-hmm. began to merge in a much more public way. And I was in the so- social sciences department as well, which is mm-hmm. something I've spoken about in other ep- pre- previous episodes, but it was absolutely formative for me um, because I came there with the intent of learning about um, learning about the life of Christ and the example of that. Mm-hmm. And then um, seeing conservative politics propped up with the various with a very different sort of interpretation of, of Christianity than what I was discovering for myself. Um, yeah. And so, I, part, I might add that I often do feel like my criticism of evangelical subculture of evangelical theology, that there's a certain sense in which it's internal Christian criticism, even though I consider myself unaffiliated now. And in fact, I just think that for my mental health, I can't be affiliated. I can't regularly attend church services of any kind. Um, but yeah, and I was I was very interested in your experience. Actually, I read about about it. I read your piece on um, you know feeling like a heretic when you voted for Democrats for the first time. Yeah, and I'm right there with you. Oh my god! So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean that that uh, that feeling. I I walked out of it was 2004. I I was registered to vote at home uh, mm-hmm. in Illinois, uh, and I was in I was in um, Indiana for school, and I drove back. Uh, for a weekend, voted early, and I cannot tell you mm-hmm. how <laughs> heavy my heart was walking out of that voting booth. Um, I didn't, I didn't know, and then I, I can't, I came to find out <laughs> that I had friends praying for me in school <laughs> because <laughs> because they knew I was, a, they knew I was leaning towards a Democrat and everything, uh, and I was one of the founding members of like the College Democrats. The College Republicans already existed. Um, but the college okay. Democrats, they had to fight tooth and nail to get them chartered That's at the right. school. <laughs> Do they still exist there? Uh, I believe so. I believe so. Um, but it's, uh, but um, the administration has taken, uh, and my alma mater has also taken a more conservative turn, which I think is abs- um, just absolutely um Unfortunate. Um, I I tried to plot a more sort of moderate path while I was at that school. I didn't necessarily want to um, be known as a liberal per se. I just wanted to allow there to be a uh, a conversation of ideas. And within your article um, about Christian colleges, it seems like that that crackdown across multiple college campuses is not even allowing that. It's it's trading in the aspect of Christian debate or a public public or educational debate for indoctrination instead. That is my sense. And that's also the sense of many people that I talked to for that article, Carl Gieberson, who has uh, years of experience in Christian education and knows lots of people in lots of different universities. The um, former Asbury faculty that I talked to, former Cedarville faculty. Um, yeah. It's there have been purges, and I think that they're probably ongoing as well. Although in many cases they might be nearly completed or completed of the kinds of faculty who would in fact create spaces for real dialogue. I am sure that some of them are still there holding on, but mm-hmm. it's definitely getting harder in, in Christian schools to have any kind of 
dissenting opinion. Yeah, and that's um, that is again very unfortunate. And I I, I know that within when the time when you wrote this article, um, the Hawkins case in particular was still ongoing, but yes. that has since closed, and it closed with her leaving the school. There was a follow up article written um, for the New York Times Magazine recently by Ruth Graham. <laughs> Um, in which she explored this um, this event further, largely around um, around the thing around Wheaton's campus and around the fallout of of those events and everything. Um, but it is symptomatic and and representative of this sort of uh, lockdown. Yes, and what Larisha Hawkins is just so de- depressing. And she's a really inspiring figure. I mean, I have so much respect for her. Um, and it was interesting to see at the end of that article, too, how she described now that after all this, she's, uh, she's going to therapy and that sort of thing. And she's willing to talk about that, which I think is very courageous. Um, but also, it's just very sad. I mean, um, I think that this is probably true of many people who have left conservative Christianity, various forms of it. Um, you know, we we wanted it to be better. We thought maybe it was better or becoming better. And I certainly have seen individual people mellow and moderate on certain things. But, uh, you know, the New York Times, speaking of New York Times, seems to always want to push this narrative of, ooh, ooh, evangelical millennials, they're so amazing. They care about the environment. Or, you know, they, um, some of them, like 40% of them, which, by the way, is, you know, not super impressive, particularly compared to other demographics, but okay. Like some 40% of white evangelicals under 35 uh, now are okay with same-sex marriage, though many of them would still, I'm sure, consider it unbiblical, right? But um, as long as it doesn't change how they vote, and it doesn't, we have zero evidence that this changes how they vote. It's a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. For fuck's sake, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yes, you can. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> it's a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal, and I'm speaking in the, in the prophetic mode. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what? So what do you think this crackdown is a result of? Do you think it's a result of al- alumni pushing this conservative agenda? Do you think it's administrations? Um, you're in higher higher education yourself. What? Where do you see this coming, this crackdown coming from? And what do you think is the result of it as an educator? What do you think the result of that is really going to be for for the students and for the faculty? Mm -hmm. Uh, So in terms of where it's coming from, uh, the sources that I talked to and Christian higher ed, you know, kind of does exist and in its own space from secular higher ed. And I don't have inside experience of that, but I have talked to insiders and so uh, a couple of things are happening. Um, indeed, it, it does have a lot to do with alumni and, and donors. Now, now, some younger alumni are actually saying that they're not going to donate if the schools don't moderate their positions on something. You see some of that around something like Asbury. But, uh, you know, the older ones who really have a lot of money uh, are definitely demanding that the schools not change their stance on homosexuality or same-sex marriage or anything like that. Um, so that's, that's one factor. But if you talk to faculty who have left, disaffected faculty, they will tell you things like uh, the administration also sees this as a way to market the schools. 
And I, I think it's a very short-sighted plan. But here now here's the place where Christian higher ed does overlap with secular higher ed or American higher ed writ large. Uh, higher ed right now is cash-strapped and, and threatened. And many liberal arts schools are having to uh, find ways to cut their budgets. And that's certainly not only true of the Christian schools, but it's also true of the Christian schools. They have, so for example, at Gordon College, uh, you know, they did face a real budget crisis. Now, they used that budget crisis as a pretext to fire people in a very targeted way. But the budget crisis was real. Um, and what people, uh, university presidents at places like um, Gordon or or Asbury are doing is they are selling the evangelical education experience to conservative Christian parents who don't want their kids to liberalize, moderate, or change. They want their kids, and they might be paying for college, and they might be telling their kids that they have to go to a Christian college. Uh, they want to make sure that they will continue to get that same kind of indoctrination that they've probably had their entire lives. And uh, I do think that the impact on students is, is quite negative. Uh, I mean, first of all, when you are so concerned about shutting down dialogue, protecting the reputation of the church, of your faith, of the institution, more than you are about protecting students, bad things happen. And um, you create a culture that is maybe you know, that fosters abuse. Um, we've seen that come out in a number of cases. Moody, for example. Uh, more, more recently, you know, the whole uh, Baylor case with sexual assault being winked at by people going all the way up to Ken Starr himself, who then had to resign, and I have to say I'm very happy about that. But, I'm, uh, but obviously what happened is a, is a terrible shame, and he let it happen because of the misogyny inherent in our um, conservative Christian subculture that doesn't take sexual assault seriously, not really. Um, but there's also spiritual abuse, sort of the kinds that I've already discussed, and I do think it's, it's abusive not to, not to let students explore their doubts. Um, so, yeah, you end up fostering um, a very toxic sort of subculture. And if you talk to the former faculty from places like Asbury who have been driven out, they'll tell you that, yeah, everything felt very toxic. Or I've never talked to, more, to people who sounded just more demoralized than certain people affiliated with Gordon that I talked to, because Gordon was a really special place. Uh, Gordon was a more open-minded Christian school. And uh, the way they phrase it now is, you know, now it's becoming Liberty North. Michael Lindsay came in as president and just changed everything overnight, pulled up the rug from the whole unique Christian college experience that Gordon had been and uh, cracked the whip. And that was that. Hmm. A lot of people have been hurt, students and faculty. So, segueing this back to your experience, um, where did where did you decide to go to college and get your higher higher education? Uh, when I was looking at colleges to go to, I did visit some Christian colleges. I, I visited Huntington College, for example. Uh, I'd been to some other campuses, partly because we knew some people there. I'm trying to remember if I went to, yeah, I did go and see Indiana Wesleyan's campus in college or in high school when I was in high school. But I think it was more like to attend a play of um, a friend of mine who had graduated earlier and had gone to IWU. So I didn't um, 
really, I wasn't really considering going there myself. I did consider going to Huntington briefly. It seemed like they had a pretty cool theater department. Uh, but I was already in kind of a crisis of faith. Um, I'd, I'd been through a lot in, in that school in terms of just beginning to have serious doubts that I could not keep down. Um, and I, it caused me so much anxiety at times. I thought uh, maybe Calvinism was true and I was among the reprobate. At there was a moment when I thought I had committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and I had a palpable lump of anxiety in my chest for a week. Um, so, yeah. But um, anyway, I was looking mainly at secular colleges. I visited the University of Chicago. I ended up not applying because I thought it would be so expensive. I would go into so much debt, uh, even if I got some financial aid. So I ended up going to Ball State University, which is my parents' alma mater. And for precisely for that reason, and because I guess there is a little bit of a perverse rebel in me, I kind of didn't want to go there because it was my parents' alma mater. But um, I got a full-ride scholarship there, the Whitinger Scholarship, and um, Ball State was was great. Um, it was it was a good place for me to be an undergraduate. However, continuing to go through that whole crisis of faith was was very difficult, and I developed depression. I'm pretty sure all the way from probably my probably my third year of college. Although I've only recently started taking antidepressants, but I think that it's something in terms of the symptoms that I've had. I've wrestled with it really for over a decade. Um, so yeah, I was, I mean, I did a lot of nice things there. I, I like, I had really great professors that kind of mentored me. Uh, but I still tried to hold on to not believing in evolution, you know, tried really hard to, even while making gay and queer friends to keep the same theology about sexuality, uh, that I'd had. I voted for George W. Bush in 2000. And I thought I had to because of abortion, but I had increasing doubts about all these things. And, um, you know, I haven't voted for a Republican since then. So as you were processing these doubts, did you find um, like-minded people that came from your sort of, um, your particular evangelical background, um, or was it something that you were processing more uh, in more of an isolation, sort of isolated away from uh, other people? Um, how did How did this whole process play out for you? That's been the hardest part. There were people that I, you know, respected and still do respect uh, old friends that are thoughtful people. And I, I really thought that some of them would have grown, and relatives would have grown more in a similar direction that I have. But I was uh, always basically let down on that front. I did this very much alone. So where did that lead you um, as you were going through this? Did, it, did you find yourself at... Um, like pro progressive churches to use that term, or did you stop going or attending to church or 
not, did you disengage from things or how did you process that part of your, your journey or your doubt? I have lived largely in my head for a very long time. I've always been an introvert. And when there's something about you that just absolutely cannot fit into the subculture that you grow up in, uh, you're, you know, there's something about you that rejects your socialization, but you don't have any other socialization. That's what you do. You live in your head. So, yeah, disengaging, I kind of did. I mean, I, for um, in college, I attended some intervarsity services and events for a while. I attended a church at Ball State called The Revolution, which now again I would call, you know, one of the, the fake edgy churches. Church is a rock show, but same old incredibly inhumane theology. Um, and then I basically disengaged. Uh, I hardly, I didn't attend church much when I spent uh, my junior year abroad, or well, technically I had enough credits by my third year to already be considered a senior, but it was my third year. And I spent it uh, partly in Gießen, Germany. And um, then the other part, traveling around Europe a bit, including Russia, and then Oxford. Uh, I did one term at Harris Manchester College, Oxford. Uh, but it started later, so I just spent some time traveling the continent before that, after the German semester. Um, over there, I, I would definitely say I was beginning to feel the symptoms of depression. Um, I remember that I was on a train going somewhere. I don't remember exactly where. I don't remember exactly when I could, I could find the exact date though. Cause it's in my journal because this is what I remember. I remember writing in my journal about all of this. And this is going to sound trite and silly. Uh, but one of the lines I wrote was something along, something to the effect of, I think I finally understand why John Lennon wanted to imagine there was no religion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can sympathize with that. I, I think that there is a, uh, I don't, I don't know. I'm still, after all this time, I'm still trying to articulate this, but I think it boils down to sometimes I I feel an, a religious impulse that I kind of wish I didn't have. Um, and I, I like I just finished um, Science Mike's book, uh, Finding God in the Waves, um, and he talks about there actually being in, like a neural network within your mind that as you as you are growing and as you utilize this neural network the feeling and sense of God is, is hardwired. And if you're not a religious person or you haven't had that background, then that part of your neural activity just doesn't exist. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very interesting um, take on religion and the religious experience. But uh, I, I can certainly sympathize with, with that, um, with, with that desire. So, Yes. Yeah, so after that, you know, I came back from my senior year. I had far less energy. Previously, I had been uh, president of the German club. We revived a 20-year-old tradition. We performed a play in the original German that they hadn't done for 20 years. I mean, not 20-year-old tradition, but they hadn't done it in 20 years because they hadn't had enough sort of dedicated German students to do it. I was a double major in history and German. My first two years, I took overloads. I was on student honors council. I was historian of Alpha Mu Gamma, the foreign language honorary. I was involved in Phi Alpha Theta, the history honorary, um, and still taking like 20-hour course loads and pulling it all off. And um, I came back from my year abroad, and I just, I had far less energy. I did disengage more. I didn't attend services as much. Um, I was really 
at that stage of, of, of crisis when I had to realize that, okay, I guess I really have to let go of this identity, but it's the only identity I've ever had. And, you know, what replaces it? And that's a hard question, I think, that many of us have to wrestle with and that in some ways I still wrestle with. And I wouldn't have articulated it this way at the time, but this is the way I would articulate it now, is that, you know, you have been socialized, programmed, indoctrinated in, in what scholars of fundamentalism call an enclave community. Many of us have been, whether that is through homeschool or Christian schooling. For many of us, um, your, almost, your entire social world is almost nothing but uh, Christian in this narrow sense of the term that evangelicals use. I mean, of course, as you know, they like to claim a monopoly on the term Christian. So they don't refer to themselves as evangelicals. Generally, they refer to themselves as Christians and very much mean that nobody else is. Um, <laughs> Well, maybe not nobody else. <laughs> yeah, enough. it gets fuzzy. <laughs> they have softened on that a little. Some of them now even think many Catholics are safe. But, but anyway. <laughs> uh, you don't know who you are. So you've gone through all that to program you into something, into a mold that you can't fit into. And then you wake up to that and you think, who the hell am I? I don't even know. It's traumatic. And it's traumatic for uh, your relatives, too, and they say, I don't know who you are anymore, or things like that. And um, it's like, well, you never did, you know, because you programmed me to be a way I can't be. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you didn't want to let me be myself. You didn't want to give me the space to find out who I really am and what my calling really is. You gave me a very specific set of social programming, and it does not compute with my operating system. You know, so of course we don't know who I am. <laughs> I mean, maybe we have, you know, some certain basic character traits are still in place. And I also think there are some ways in which I'll always be culturally Protestant. Um, but you have a lot to unpack, a lot to break down, and then a lot to rebuild back up in terms of, again, it's kind of a trite sounding expression, but in terms of finding yourself. Yeah, and I, I think there's value in that language. P. Holmes can sometimes use it in his podcast. You made it weird where he, <laughs> he talks to people. Um, and it's a, this process of constructing, deconstructing, and then reconstructing your worldview or your faith or whatever you might want to ascribe that, however you might want to describe that experience. Um, and I, and for a lot of people, if you're, if you're conscious of this whole process, um, then, it's very painful. It's absolutely very painful. Um, For many people, it's dragged out. You know, have you ever looked at the, any of the work of Marlene Monell? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, she's the psychologist who coined the term religious trauma syndrome. And um, she's been trying to get it accepted as an official diagnosis. But I, I, I absolutely think she's, she's 100% right that there is a species of PTSD associated with uh, leaving a religious community that you grew up in, or didn't necessarily grew up in, but just became very, very heavily personally invested in. You know, it is a, for many, it's a traumatic experience. Apparently for some people, it's pretty easy to shed it somehow. Maybe it never went deep. Uh, Maybe it feels liberating. But for many of us, it's a long, drawn-out, painful process. And um, coming out on the other side, or, you know feeling like, okay, I'm on the other side now, but where am I? doesn't immediately feel liberating. It just feels 
uncomfortable. And you suddenly are, are weird everywhere. You're neither fish nor a fowl. You know, you're weird to the community that you grew up in. But now that you know that you're from a weird and toxic subculture, you're also weird to everybody who's not from that subculture. And neither people who grew up with more benign forms of religion nor people who grew up without religion at all really understand this. Uh, not intuitively, not viscerally. I mean, they have to, to listen to be able to understand it. Nor do the people in the communities that we come from understand it. They have sort of a powerful narrative structure already in place to explain our experience away for us. So we were never really saved to begin with. You know, that's a popular one. We were dashing Demises or, um, or whatever. And yet, as Marlene Winnell points out, and her website is definitely worth checking out in her book, um, many, many people who end up with religious trauma trauma syndrome, are those who absolutely took their faith very, very seriously. So they tried really hard to, to do it, to believe, to be what they were supposed to be. And then that experience is just utterly dismissed by the people they come from, because now, you know, you end up feeling like a traitor. And even if no one tells you a traitor, that's how you feel. If no one calls you a traitor, that is, you know, that's how you feel. Yeah, I think you, I think you, re- you really nailed that. Uh, you do feel like a traitor and you feel weird everywhere. I like, I like the way you phrase that. You feel just out of place. Um, even, even if you haven't necessarily told anyone, even if it's like, like your experience, you're just processing all of this on your own. you you realize that your current thoughts don't match up with what you used to believe or what you were taught to believe. Um, it's very, um, it's like vertigo, (laughs) like it's disorienting. Um, so for you, after you have this, um, after you have this process, uh, that leads to this, this idea within your, that you write down in your journal about, you know, understanding Lenin's point about imagining no religion, you, you continue into grad school, you continue for your master's and a PhD all throughout all of this, um, you mentioned that you do engage for, for a while um, through the Episcopal Church and everything. What's your, what's your process? Yeah. And I, I, tried, um, I tried several churches in grad school, and, and they were pretty liberal and they were pretty good. I mean, I went to like an Elka church for a while as well that was on campus. Uh, I just didn't integrate that deeply into the community, but I met, I met some people in both cases that I really like and I really appreciate. But I think that also the healthy thing for me was just to disengage, at least for a while. I was really trying to keep up appearances, I'm sure, still for, in part for my, uh, my family. Um, I was dissimulating sometimes, and I really didn't know if I was doing that for them or if I was doing that for me. Am I trying to protect myself? Am I trying to protect my family? It's really hard to sort through all your motivations. Um, at Stanford, I did get a little bit of therapy you could get it uh, as a grad student through the, um, the health center. Um, and I think that was helpful. Sometimes I went to church. I even tried some evangelical churches. But by the end of grad school, I was pretty much done with it. I really tried to hold on. And at the same time, like, I came around to say, you know, openly supporting a lot of things that um, would identify me as not not agreeing with what is expected in the subculture that I grew up in. So, like, I started actively um, 
advocating for same-sex marriage, for example, and um, universal health care, a lot of other liberal positions. And um, sometimes I would be critical of Christian schools or whatever, and then my mom would get really hurt, which I understand. And, you know, she still teaches in one of them. Um, and again, not everything about the school is bad, but just there are these negative aspects of the subculture that we have to face. Um, I did have a lot of teachers in that school who really cared about me, though, and um, cultivated my talents. I mean, the fact that I can even write think pieces and do journalism, I, I certainly do owe to the English teachers in my Christian high school. You know, I, I mean, and I had a good rapport with them. Um, so I finally started doing things like that, and that's much more recent. You know, it was not quite a year and a half ago that I first published my really big sort of I'm not an evangelical anymore sort of essay, and that didn't go over well, as you may imagine, with certain people. Um, and I got accused of attacking everything we stand for and that sort of thing, because it's always all or nothing with them, as you know. Um, yeah, and that's that's one of the most tenacious and, I think, sort of noxious aspects of evangelicalism, is that it is all or nothing. There's no middle ground. There's no mm-hmm. place to exist where you can ask questions. There's no place to exist where you can feel safe saying something that's not a party line. Uh, and mm-hmm. the thing is, is that I can say party line and most people that have any sort of experience within evangelicalism, whether it's going to a Christian college or staying at a going to like a non-denominal church, to non-denominational church that is default Southern Baptist or something like mm-hmm. they know what that means <laughs> when mm-hmm. I, when, and that's, that's the thing. There's something about the culture that is pervasive um, and works yeah. its way into, to multiple facets of Christian life in America, regardless mm-hmm. of whether there's, whether sometimes even within, I was in, at a mainline church uh, in high school, but the youth group was, in many ways, evangelical. It wasn't, you know, it certainly wasn't some Unitarian church where they were talking about like sex ed, uh, like the <laughs> things that I heard about on NPR where I was floored, like, you know, uh, and <laughs> oh, sex ed, guess what we got, we, we got, you know, like, uh, Velcro half hearts being put together and then torn apart. And if you do that too much, you know, the Velcro doesn't stick anymore. <laughs> and, we yeah. got coerced into uh, signing purity pledges. That was at the middle school in Colorado Springs. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's there's all these aspects of of evangelical culture that there is a shorthand that we all know at this point. Oh, um, we also got told not to go near the underwear zone. <laughs> just want to say that phrase, the underwear <laughs> zone, because it's hilarious. Uh, that was part of a, a, you know, abstinence only sex ed program called CPR for creating positive relationships. And the question came up, like, how far can you go with someone? And, um, the, the answer was, well, that's a bad question because obviously you don't want to go up to the line. Like you really shouldn't be thinking that way, but definitely anything that's covered by underwear is, you know, hands off. So stay away from the underwear zone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the uh, sex ed that we got yeah yeah oh my <laughs> oh, that brings up things <laughs> um yeah <laughs> uh so even 
I'm I'm making a hard pivot. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I'm I'm sorry if I got us off topic. Though. No, no, no. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um. So even though you're in a very different place now, you still have a, a very public and um, public interest in this, in that you are writing about it. You're you're investigating these things journalistically. Um, so you have a concern for people. Um, both that people are aware and also for the people involved in these sorts of communities. Um, where, uh, even though you, you don't personally identify like as that anymore, where, where does that sort of desire come from for you right now? Uh, it comes from a number of places. Um, so I guess one place is that in order to find my way out of this and try to find my, my way to some sort of better place, uh, I had to intellectualize it and study it and think about it in social context and historical context. Um, so it's not accidental that I became a historian of uh, religious thought and religious ideology, even though that's been mostly in Russia in the early 20th century. I've also started looking at the connections. They are quite direct, the influence of these Russian Christian intellectuals that I wrote my dissertation about. Uh, on the development of American anti-communism. Um, so I've been unpacking all these sorts of things. Why did I study Russia in the first place? Because I went to Russia on short-term mission trips in 1999 and 2000. So the summer after I graduated from high school and then the summer after my first year of college, even though I was in the midst of a crisis of faith. Um, and seeing some things with missionaries uh, in, in Russia, too, also was, was one of the things that can, contributed to me continuing to think my way out of the faith. For example, seeing a Wesleyan pastor in Vladimir, Russia, who had been uh, pastoring his church there for seven years, still preaching through an interpreter, was less than impressive. Or hearing um, a woman who was working with a missionary organization in, in Moscow who claimed that she spoke fluent Spanish, but God just called her to Russia. Isn't he funny that way? Uh, but I'm getting off the topic. So anyway, so personal history somehow is very important to me. Um, I think part of that is because I do, uh, I do value family. I value the fact that my family values family. And they, my, my parents, my relatives, they tried very hard to give me the best upbringing that they could. Um, and I think when they got caught up in a more toxic form of Christian conservatism in college through Campus Crusade, which, by the way, is a very radical, extremist, far-right Christian organization, though on the surface they, they don't cultivate that image, but they are. In fact, Campus Crusade has had its hand in um, a program, in a missionary program in Russia called the Co-Mission, which took place in the 90s, where... Um, Different Christian organizations were involved in creating an ethics curriculum for Russian public schools, and um, they were selling it very, very differently. They were partnering with the Orthodox Church, but selling it very differently to them than they were selling it to their evangelical constituents back home. And um, it was basically boiled down to, you know, you can't really be ethical unless you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and also the anti-gay ideology. They were pushing that in Russian public schools, and Camp's Crusade was spearheaded that event. But anyway... My parents had conversion uh, experiences through Campus Crusade uh, in college, were very involved with the Campus House, have a lot of good friends from that, so from that evangelical Christian community at Ball State. And, and I think um, 
It's understandable in part as a reaction to the turbulence of the 60s, you know? Um, so I, I had to think about it in all these kinds of sociological and historical terms uh, and psychological terms. Evangelicalism, uh, conservative forms of Christianity and religion in general, fundamentalism in general, uh, it's a misdirected, I think, response to trauma. It's an attempt to impose order uh, in order to keep your demons at bay when you actually need to face them and work through certain things. And so it fosters cycles of trauma and abuse. Um, in Lacanian terms, if I can go there, if that's not too out there for this podcast. Just uh, add, let's just preface it with a little explanation of what you mean there. Okay, so Jacques Lacan, right, uh, is a French intellectual, and probably more people would be familiar with his ideas through Slavoj Žižek, the Slovenian pop philosopher known for, among other things, movies like The Pervert's Guide to Cinema and The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Now, he's using the term pervert there in a very Lacanian way, and I'll explain that. Um, so building on Freud, um, Lacan develops a, a very particular idea of perversion that goes well beyond just sex and sexuality. Uh, so according to Lacan, you know, if you have a certain kind of uh, anxiety, a certain kind of hang-up that you can't face, you will... Um, that, that's, that's how you become perverted. You end up constructing a defensive fetish uh, in order to protect yourself from that. So, you know, uh, um, it could be, for example, for evangelicals, you know, unborn children, abortion. Uh, unborn children are very much a defensive, a defensive fetish. They might want to say things like, well, you know, I think it would be nice to think more about taking care of the environment. But I just can never consider Democrats because of abortion. It's a, it's a defensive fetish in Lacanian terms. Um, and by the way, for the application of Lacan to, specifically to authoritarian religious groups, I have to cite my friend and colleague from Moscow, Dmitry Wislaner, because he's written articles about that. And that's where I got this particular idea of applying it to, I mean, it's his idea of applying it to conservative religious communities. Um, so, yeah, I tried to sort all those things out and see what I could, could salvage because I know and I knew that, you know, there are very good people in there. And also that um, there are many good impulses among people in my family and uh, I, I love them. And I like that they actually really are very supportive of family, however they can be. And my parents are still very supportive of me in many ways. Um, so, you know, I couldn't just let it all Go. I also felt that for myself, for my own mental health, um, I had to start. I finally had to start talking about it. I finally had to start being honest and open about it. And that first article that I published on these sorts of things. I mean, I had published a couple things before about Christianity and politics, but nothing so personal. The one that I published in June 2015 that was uh, given the headline "Anti-Gay Evangelicalism is the Norm: A Less Rosy Take on the Evangelical Tipping Point." Um, that was the, the first time I'd written so personally. I wrote about my school. Everyone was really offended, but I think I partly did that out of the passive aggression that comes from the subculture we grew up in, where you're not allowed to have open conflicts to force necessary conversations to happen. And that doesn't necessarily speak well of me, but 
But now they're happening. And, you know, they are moving in a positive direction overall with many relatives. And that's that's definitely very, very true. And as far as things beginning to happen, um, that's something that that uh, we've we've talked off mic about this, the of the, the very thoughts behind the things that you've published and and this project here. It's very much about finding people that have processed things in a similar way um, and giving voice to them, because there's something there's something there that hasn't been voiced hasn't been said out loud um and it's time that it has so um yeah. so i mean i'm i'm definitely a kindred spirit in that regard um just because there is a certainly an exodus of people that has been happening for a while from evangelicalism or from religion in general um but one of the only ways that we can really process that is in public and by naming the things. Um, and yeah. even if someone finds a home, a spiritual home, so to speak, um, within uh, a more progressive strain, if you, uh, to couch it in more political terms, um, a more progressive strain of, of Christian thought or Christianity, um, mm-hmm. then that, that's certainly an option. Um, but mm-hmm. giving voice to, um, to the sorts of communities that, we've come from is also equally important because it acknowledges the past and it gives us a way to process the things that we've all gone through. Um, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I'm definitely of a similar mind in regards to that. Um, have you ever read any bell hooks? Uh, no, I have not. She's an amazing African-American feminist, uh, scholar, and she's got this book called talking back, thinking feminist, thinking black. And, um, it's it's really heady. It's really dense. It's not long, but you know, it's it really makes you think. And I think that possibly we can borrow that concept of talking back uh, in our context because we come from communities that do not brook talking back. And um, talking back is necessary. You know, if we don't, as you say, name these things and talk about them, these these issues, they just they just fester. Um, and that destroys many people's lives. Uh, a lot of people, I think, are living in quiet desperation or just kind of living quietly um, hypocritical lives. Um, you know, other people maybe go along with everything and it more or less fits them, but they don't realize how much harm their views are doing to other people and their politics are doing to other people. So if I have one sort of big goal right now, just apart from trying to pursue my academic career, um, it's, I mean, so it, it's it's a kind of tripartite thing. I and but it's all it all revolves around uh, ex-evangelicals and former conservative Christians coming together and um, discussing our experiences in public in a way that will get people to listen. And I I think there's sort of three, as I said, prongs that maybe could come out of that ideally. So one is that we help each other heal because there's a lot of healing to do, and it's terrible to feel like you're alone. And um, I think a lot of us who go through it for a long time do feel like we're alone. So if anybody out there needs to hear this, you're not alone. Um, Secondly, maybe we help um, younger people in conservative Christian communities right now who are going through similar things. It's it's really, that's, I guess, part B of the first point, right, is that they, they know they're not alone. And maybe they don't have to go through as traumatic experiences as some of us did. Um, 
then the other two prongs are that I think this is the best possible way to get at least some people in the subculture and communities that we grew up in to listen and to consider that maybe they need to make some changes. And so far, they're pretty impervious to change. But if we have a lot of public conversations about this, um, in some cases, that might help to force the issue, force them to confront how much harm they do, for example, to members of the LGBT community, but not only to, to women, to minorities. Um, and then thirdly, I think it's important for our wider American society that is not from Jesus land, USA, from our weird little subculture, to understand better the experience of Jesus land, USA, and of people who are there and of people who have left it. Uh, and I'd like to think that that's not just a self-serving goal. I think it matters because there are a lot of us, um, either who are in Jesus land or who have left Jesus land. And, um, our subculture, its institutions, its ways of thinking, its politics has a major, major impact. In fact, I would argue that um, the Christian right has been the most important factor in radicalizing the Republican Party to the point where it is today, and therefore to basically breaking America. Um, I don't think that's an overstatement. It might be, but certainly they had a huge hand in it, right? So it's important to understand Christian conservatism. And again, people who didn't grow up with it often just find it utterly baffling. So mm. I think all those three points are very important things. And um, I'm really interested, I'm going to say this to you, Blake, I want to say this also to anybody who's listening, in um, finding ways to work together to have these conversations, to tell our stories, to share our stories, and to pursue these goals. And so that's one reason I'm really happy to be on your podcast and that I really appreciate your podcast. Yeah, and I'm I'm happy I'm happy to do those things too, and I'm happy to contribute in this way uh, and in in other ways in the future because of those those very reasons. And uh, very much be I I very much agree with your points around uh, the political aspects of things. Um, that to me that was one of the major things that made me begin to question my faith. So so severely in college and the years afterwards, it was largely around the politicization of my faith that I wanted to, I, I did not want that to, to be the default for me. Um, and, and I, I totally agree with that assessment. Um, I, and I, I really like that three prong approach. I, I think there's a lot to that there. And it is very interesting to see, um, this divide between the people that have been inside this this um, this culture and have either left or not, and then the people that just don't even know it exists. Um, I think it's really interesting to listen to some episodes of uh, shows like Sunday School Dropouts, where they're uh, engaging with the actual biblical text, and they they have guests on that have very have a lot of varied experience with religion and like some of them just don't have the frame of reference that, that the people in Jesus land have. And it's very interesting to see their, their take on it um, because it's so different. Um, I mean, you can, you can appreciate their perspective when you're out of Jesus land and you're kind of in the regular cultural milieu, <laughs> but the insular perspective on that text and that sort of thing is so um, I can, I can slip back into it. It's like putting on a, or, you know, I can, it's like putting on a jacket. I can, I can remember it, you know, <laughs> I can remember what it's like. And um, 
I think for me, I understand Christianese, but I don't speak it fluently anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the only the only part of it I speak fluently is prophetic rebuke because our community <laughs> needs that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, that's very true. Um, but I so, feel very awkward using certain Jesus landy terms, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but they it can come back to you, um, which is yeah. which is interesting. Um, one of the one of the ways, another one of the ways that you are exploring this is also through the anthology that you're that you're putting together right now. Can you talk a little bit about that and what sure. your goals are with that anthology? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm very excited about it. We are currently uh, Lauren O'Neill and I, and again, she's a co-host of the podcast Sunday School Dropouts, uh, which I'm, I'm glad that you you like it too. I, I also find it interesting for some of the same reasons that that you do. Uh, so. Yeah, we're um, drafting our proposal. She went to a proposal workshop with uh, an author, Julia Shears, who actually wrote a really interesting uh, personal memoir, which is called Jesus Land, and I highly recommend it. She's from Indiana, by the way, Julia Shears. Uh, so anyway, you know, I, we wrote a draft of it. Lauren went to that workshop. Um, now we have some things that we want to do to revise the draft, and then we'll start shopping the proposal. But we have some amazing content. Um, We've got Gerd Conley uh, uh, on the project, for example. He has just published a memoir called Boy Erased, and it's about uh, the traumatic experience of going through ex-gay therapy. Um, We've got a pretty diverse group of people contributing to it in terms of um, ethnicity, background, class, sexuality, um, and also people from different branches of uh, Christianity. So we have ex-Mormons, ex-Catholics. I think it's going to be. Uh, I think it's going to be a powerful project. I, I hope it resonates and gets read. I'm excited about it. That's great. Um, and I'm I'm definitely looking forward to finding out more about about your about your project and finding out where it lands and everything. Because I think that is a, mm-hmm. that sort of project is is just it's it's right it's right down the right down the middle for me <laughs> I yeah mean, it does. So, I, I, it, we also bring to light a lot the experience of um dealing with various kinds of abuse in conservative christian communities and i think there is a place for projects like uh, like yours that take into account the experiences of people who landed in a more moderate or progressive version of christianity and we don't place the emphasis on that i think we also need projects where, you know, we're highlighting the voices of people who have just left it behind because they had to. And we have some amazing stories in there. Uh, one of the things about Julia Shears, by the way, is that she went to, she was sent to a very abusive reform school in the Caribbean. Uh, I mean, it was run by a Christian so-called ministry. Um, and one of the other survivors of that Caribbean Christian reform school, uh, Deirdre Sugiuchi, is also contributing to our volume, uh, writing about parental abuse in a conservative Christian context. She's amazing. Everyone should definitely read her work as well. Uh, uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, I think there are different kinds of coalitions to, to be built, different kinds of spaces to be constructed for telling these stories. And we're focusing on those who are just driven all the way out with maybe... A couple exceptions. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Frank Schaefer is has agreed to um, write a forward. Oh wow, wow, that's great. Well, where can people find you online to to 
talk with you more or find your find your writing? Uh, I've written a lot of pieces for Religion Dispatches. That's the outlet where I published the most. So if you go to Religion Dispatches, uh, it's, which is a very good online magazine of religion from a variety of confessional and non-confessional perspectives, mostly liberal um, commentary journalism, you can search for me there and find me. Uh, I've written for a few other outlets as well. I've got one co-authored piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education. I wrote something that also has to do with higher ed, if that's an interest of yours, uh, for Russia Beyond the Headlines. And uh, I'm on Twitter, and I'm increasingly active on Twitter. And Twitter has been a great place for me to make connections uh, with, with people who are wanting to advance these same kinds of goals. And I'm so glad that I've started to find people, and they started to find me, including you. You know, we connected on Twitter, yep. which I really appreciate. <laughs> Thank you for finding me. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at uh, C underscore Stroop, C underscore S-T-R-O-O-P, and I would definitely love to uh, communicate with other ex-evangelicals on Twitter because to me that's that's very healing. I'd, I'd love to be able to do more kind of personal and face-to-face things as well. And I do know a handful of people in the Tampa Bay area who are ex-evangelicals, but I don't get to see them all that often. I don't have a support group or anything. I'm hoping maybe someday those kinds of projects can happen. But in the meantime, Twitter is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Twitter <laughs> is definitely something that I'm... I'm trying to to engage more, even more in these sorts of particular conversations um, on Twitter because it's a public forum, and I think that that allows for more interesting conversation um, and less uh, less insular conversation than the sorts of private networks we create on Facebook. Um, just it allows for something really interesting and unique. <laughs> um, but yeah. I'm a big Twitter advocate, so I can talk about that forever. Um, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Stroop. You can find me on Twitter at BRChastain, and please keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram by following the show on those platforms at Pod. You can also like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash Pod. The hashtag for this episode is hashtag Weird Everywhere. You can find the show notes and essays on exvangelicalpodcast.com. Have a great week. Just one more day until this election is behind us. Amen.